We are on week three. We're going to continue our series called Thermometers and Thermostats. It's a vision series. We're talking about our vision statement, reach up, rise up, reach out, from the perspective of thermometers and thermostats. So what's the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? A thermometer can tell the temperature. How many people know this world's messed up? How about maybe you've even got some issues? You know, you can tell. There's, there's problems in this world. Now, a thermometer can tell the temperature, but a thermometer is powerless to do anything about it. A thermostat, on the other hand, can both tell the temperature and change the temperature. A thermostat can make a difference. And we as believers in Jesus Christ are on this planet not just to notice that things are messed up and be angry about it and be angry thermometers. We're here to make a difference, to make some changes, and to be thermostats that are full of faith and seeing the opportunities and ready to make a difference in this world. So that's how we've been looking at reach up, rise up, reach out, because this is about being a thermostat. It's about making a real difference in this world. So we've looked at the, the first two parts of the vision statement. You know, reach up, a real relationship with the living God is available to you. Rise up, we talked about last week, a real relationship with the living God will change you. This week, we're going to talk about reach out. A real relationship with the living God is a call to action. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 9, uh, a situation that Jesus finds himself in. And let's take a look at this and tie it into uh, reaching out, trying to make a difference in this world. So Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So how's this going? He seems to be welcomed into the synagogues in all these different places. It's going really well. He's preaching the good news. People are getting healed. You know, uh, really cool stuff is happening. So you'd think the next verse would be something like, and everybody was super happy. What is the next verse? Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So here's the thermometer piece of the puzzle. Jesus is having a successful experience going from place to place, preaching the good news. People are getting healed. You know, he seems to be well accepted. But he looks out onto society and he sees people who need help and there's no one there to help them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're not guided and they're not protected. And he sees that need and his heart goes out to them. He's not just thinking about himself. He's looking at the world and he's noticing that there are problems. So then what happens? Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He defines the problem. He says, look, lots of people need help, but there's not enough people to help them. Was that just a problem 2,000 years ago or is that a problem today? Is that a third world problem or is it also a problem in the United States? This is, a, this is a worldwide problem. There are more needs than there are people to help. It was true then. It's true now. It's true in Cloquet. It's true in New York. It's a fact. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Jesus, he can tell the temperature. He defines the problem. In the next verse, he offers a solution. Verse 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The solution Jesus gives is pray to God 
to send some people to help. Pray. Pray to Almighty God that he would send some people to help. Does prayer make a difference? Prayer makes a difference, I think, in two profound ways. Number one, when God's people pray, it moves the hand of God. You know, there's a few things I'm going to have to ask the Lord about when we get to meet face to face. And one of them is, why did you make stuff up to us? Why did you leave things in our hands? You know, that seems like a really bad decision. We make mistakes. We have wrong things in our heart. We unintentionally mess things up. We miss things. You know, why would God wait for us to pray to do something that needs doing? I don't know, but that's how we set it up. He gets to choose. (laughs) But when God's people pray, it moves the hand of God. So that's a profound power in prayer. And the second thing that happens, which maybe isn't talked about as much, that's powerful in prayer, is when people pray, it changes the heart of the person who's praying. So when I pray, when you pray, it moves the hand of God, but it also affects our heart. It also helps us to get more in line with the heart of God and the plan of God when we pray. So Jesus is saying the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. God needs to send some people to help, and you need to start to care about these people. So let's pray. When you pray, it moves the hand of God, but it also opens up the heart of God inside of you. So when you pray, Lord, help these people your care for those people begins to grow. This is another reason why you're supposed to pray for your enemies. You know, Jesus asks us to do some rather difficult things. And one of those things is to not hate our enemies, but love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why should we pray for our enemies? Because it's going to help us get to the place where we can finally forgive and let it go and let God avenge put it in the hands of God. So we pray for our enemies in large part to help our heart heal and grow spiritually to the place where we actually can offer true forgiveness. It's very important that we pray for our own heart. Last week, we talked about James 1, 13 through 15, and the negative aspect of that. Let's tie in this idea of prayer into how to turn this into a positive. So by way of review, let's go back to James 1, starting in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So does God tempt people? No, he will test you though. And it can seem very much the same as being tempted. But a test is there to see if we will pass the test and be advanced. A temptation of the enemy is to pull us down. See the major difference between a temptation and a test. A test is so that we can pass and advance. A temptation is trying to stop us, hinder us, pull us back. But sometimes those can be a little bit interwoven. Do you remember that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert for what purpose? To be tempted by the devil. So the test was, can you overcome the temptation? So sometimes there's an interesting overlap there. But how many people know in order to pass the test of being able to walk with God and serve God, you've got to be able to overcome the temptation of the enemy. You have to do that. How does this work then? How does temptation cause problems? Verse 14. 
But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. His own evil desire, a thing on the inside of us. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin is the behavior, it's the action. Again, your thought life can be an action as well if you're dwelling on things. But when it it first crosses your mind, that's the desire. Then sin is the behavior, the life pattern, and it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is a description of a long process, not something that takes a minute and a half, but this is a a lifestyle that starts with something on the inside that's not right. It goes to then a life pattern that is destructive, which then eventually leads to the destruction that comes from destructive life patterns. So that's the negative side. And last week we talked about how you overcome this is at the desire stage. It's at the internal stage. And so how do we get godly desires in our hearts? Well, we've just talked about one of the main things that prayer does is affect our heart. So if we begin to pray, it starts to put the godly desires in there. When godly desires are in your heart, you're going to live out godly life patterns. And when you live out the godly life patterns, it's going to produce the result of having an impact for the kingdom of God and for good in this world. So prayer is vitally, vitally important to get the God thing in your heart in the first place. Because when you try to stop this process at the sin level, then you're trying to not do something that you want to do. How many of you have just spent a lot out of your life trying to not do something that you actually want to do? (laughs) That's just a painful hassle. But when you get the understanding, when you get the desire in your heart that's a godly desire, then you get to true freedom. And it's a beautiful place to be. So we need to be people who pray so that we can get godly desires in our hearts so that we can live out godly life patterns, healthy life patterns, and see the good result. So Jesus is talking about the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Just after this, he's going to send out the 12 to go minister. In a a similar scenario where Jesus is sending out the 72, we see that in Luke chapter 10. There's a tremendous number of parallels here. So let's look at Luke chapter 10, first three verses. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So now he's going to send out the 72. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So he's given them the same speech. This apparently was a fairly common speech that Jesus would give because he's giving the same speech in different contexts and different situations where he's sending out believers to go make a difference in this world. He's saying the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. And here in Luke is very direct. The next verse is this. Go. Okay, you've been praying. Now you can see the need. You're starting to care about the same things that God cares about. Now you go. You've been praying for somebody to go. You go. You know, if you, if you start praying for a family member, if you start praying for your workplace, if you start praying for your friend group, if you start praying for them, and you're saying, God, you got to send somebody to straighten them out, because wow, are they messed up. And then all of a sudden, your prayers start to get more compassionate and more caring, and then all of a sudden, you realize, oh, it's me that's supposed to help. I'm the one that's supposed to go. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers and go. You go. Followed by, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. So apparently being thrown to the wolves is a teaching of Jesus. And 
If we go to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is sending out the 12, we see this, Matthew 10, 16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Just like he said, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. And he told them, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Also, when it's the same speech, he says to the 12, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. The idea is that we get thrown to the wolves. It it apparently is a core teaching of Jesus that when he's sending people out to go make a difference in this world, he tells them, I'm sending you out like lambs, like sheep among wolves. Why would he say that? Is that an encouraging message? Hey, come follow Jesus. You'll get thrown to the wolves like a little lamb. Why would he say that? It was very simple because there are obstacles. There are challenges. There are difficulties in serving God. It doesn't just work easily. You know, there are wolves. There are false brothers. And there's our own personal lack of growth which I think is a huge obstacle. That's why you got to clean toilets first before you want to preach. That could be metaphorical, but you have to do some junk work before you get to preach because if you're not about humility and personal growth, it's not going to work out in the long run. It's just a simple fact. Last year, I was talking to my wife. I don't remember the context of it, but somehow I said to her, you know, 18 years of ministry at that point, now it's 19 Just telling her, you know, every year, every year, 18 years of constant struggle for competence. That's what this is about. So it's a constant struggle for competence. Because once you learn one thing, God gives you another. And you got to figure out how to do that. Then God gives you another thing. And then you got to figure that out. And unless you want to stagnate, you have to constantly struggle and fight for competence. Or else you're going to live the same year. 18 times, and that's no fun. I want to live a different year. I want to live the next year. You know, I don't want to do second grade 10 years in a row. Second grade wasn't real good for me anyway, but that's when they found out I couldn't read. I could memorize very well, but I could not read. So if somebody else read it first, I could say the same things, but they caught me. (laughs) So there are obstacles. There are wolves. There are false brothers. There's our own personal lack of spiritual growth, etc. There are challenges to making a difference in this world. How many people have tried to make a difference, have tried to bring positive change, and it just didn't work? It's frustrating. It's a battle. It's difficult. There are hardships. There's opposition. And yet we must continue. We must persevere. We must stick with it. So we need to understand when this is a dark world and we come to bring light into a dark world, the dark world isn't going to go, sweet, you're finally here. Come on in and just fix everything. Instead, it's going to be like, well, who do you think you are? And there's going to be opposition. So we need to be ready for that opposition. So how do we become thermostats? How do we go from an angry thermometer, a stagnant Christian with a bad attitude, into a thermostat that can make a real difference? Let's pull all the things together that we've kind of been learning these last few weeks. First one, reach up. Prayer moves the hand of God. It gives us the heart of God. And we need to stay connected to the Lord in order to get anywhere anyway. John 15, 5, a verse that we focused on the first week, John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So if we want to bear fruit, it's another way of being a thermostat, of changing the world that we're in, then the first step is to, to stay connected with Jesus. We can't just disconnect from Jesus and go make a difference on our own strength. It's not going to work. It's like the branch that's cut off and withers. It doesn't bear fruit. So the first step is staying connected with the Lord in prayer, staying connected in worship, staying connected through our devotional time, through studying, staying connected with Jesus is the first step. Then we rise up. Man, we got to grow. I love 2 Peter 1.8. We actually did an eight-week series on the scriptures I'm going to read and spend about three minutes on, so we're going to go real quick through these, but it's a huge thing because the way my brain works, I love verses like 2 Peter 1.8. 2 Peter 1.8 says this, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many people want to be effective and productive? How many people who, when you try to make a difference, it actually works? You know, like effective and productive. This is speaking my language, a list of things. Possess these qualities, you'll get the job done. I'm like, sweet. Let's see the list. So go back a couple verses, verse 5, and we see the list. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. So this is that lifelong learning. We're adding, we're adding. So the first thing that we need is faith. It starts with faith. Trusting God's got this. He's bigger than this. God's got a good plan. We'll overcome. If nothing else, we'll be able to stand in faith through the adversity, and that's, that's good enough. We, we have faith. Add to your faith goodness. Goodness here, the literal translation would be manliness. So the the Greek word is the word manliness. Add to your faith, goodness. So I looked up the word manliness. You know, what's the root words to find out what this means? And it's it's just stronger for lifting is what the Greek means. It means you can pick up heavy things. So add to your faith, manliness, goodness. And that means add to your faith. Okay, you you got faith now. Now have the strength to do the right thing. You need to apologize. You go ahead and do that. You feel like you should come up for prayer, but you are not sure. Have the strength, man up and come down for prayer. You know, have the strength to do the right thing. Then, add to goodness, knowledge. Once you're walking by faith, you've got the strength to do the right thing, you're going to start learning some stuff through experience. You're going to add knowledge. Verse 6, and to knowledge, self-control. Self-control is strength, but it's, it's the other side. It's the strength to not do the wrong thing. You know, you have to have the strength to do the right thing, So you got faith, goodness, knowledge. Now you're building a life in Christ. Good things are happening, and you got to not sabotage that. you got to not do the dumb thing that pulls everything back down. you got to pass the test of being able to overcome the temptations of the enemy. That's self-control. So you've got to have the strength to not mess it up. And to self-control, perseverance. You can't spell perseverance without severe. It means you got to last through the hard times. There's perseverance. This isn't a short deal. It isn't a quick fix. It's a long-term thing. Add to perseverance, godliness. Godliness, now you're starting to get in tune with God. Your, your life is set apart for the things of God. Your character is beginning to get more and more godly. So to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. That means that we start to love each other. We love one another brother to brother, Christian to Christian, you know, the the family of God coming together, then we can love one another. That's a challenge, amen? Because we talked about last week, hurting people hurt people. And we invite the hurting and the broken to come to church. You put a bunch of them in the same room and something bad can happen. We got to love one another through that so that we can grow out of that. Brotherly kindness and then brotherly kindness, love. 
that love is that agape love, the God kind of love. This is the love your neighbor, the love your enemies, the just bring love into environments that are full of strife and pain and hurt and bitterness. Bring some love, bring some forgiveness, be able to rise above that and bring love to this world. So if we can do those eight things, then we'll be making progress, we'll be effective, we'll be productive, we'll be able to make a difference. And then reach out. I believe if we reach up and we rise up, the reach out part, the making a difference, will just naturally flow. You know, Jesus said, abide in the vine. You know, stay connected with me and it's going to work out. You'll end up bearing some fruit. He didn't do a, a seminar on how to bear fruit. He just said, stay connected. You know, and then in Second Peter... These are input goals, not output goals. You know the difference between an input goal and an output goal? How many people have ever tried to lose weight? So you make a goal. I'm going to lose 10 pounds, you know, and I'm kind of nervous about that, so I need something to pick up my spirits, so I'm going to eat a pie, you know, so that I can feel better. And then you go weigh yourself, feeling full of faith, and you, you gained weight. You're like, what? Because you had the output goal. You wanted to lose weight, but you didn't have the input goal of diet and exercise, you know, if you just eat an 1,800-calorie diet and you run 2,000 calories worth of running every day, you're going to lose weight. You don't have to set an output goal on how much weight you want to lose. If you just do the input part, the output's going to take care of itself. And that's the same thing with church. You know, let's have a church growth strategy. Let's get as many people to come. Let's set how many people we want to have come. Well, tell you what, let's love people. Let's work on forgiveness. Let's grow. Then that, the rest of it's going to take care of itself right? So we want to be connecting with God, growing in our faith, and then the making a difference will just, it'll flow. It'll make sense. It'll come easy. I want to tell you about something that we're going to be uh, initiating here at Good Hope in not too long, but I just want to introduce it here. If you've noticed, our child sponsorship program was a fantastic success. We are, through the child sponsorship program, now the primary financial partner for an orphanage in another country that would not exist if it wasn't for this congregation right here. That's pretty sweet. That's, that's making a difference in this world. But the reason was because you get to look at the picture of an individual person and say, I want to make a difference for this individual person. Not just, well, let's give to global missions in general. You know, this individual kid. You know, I'm going to make a difference for Chris. And, and you see that person. And the idea... We're going to call it kingdom investments, and it's the same thing. There's local missions, global missions, and then future initiatives, and it will give people the opportunity to give to those individual things. So instead of just missions giving, you can give to a missionary. You can like sponsor a missionary like you sponsor a kid at the children's home. You could even sponsor the mortgage of the church. You know, say, I want to put, you know, $50 a month that goes directly towards the principal of the mortgage. You know, if you're somebody that cares about that and you're just like, oh, mortgage, kill it, you know, and that's the thing that, that gets you, then we're going to give you an opportunity to be able to focus your giving on that thing that gets you. You know, if it's a, a local missions work, a global missions work, or something that sets us up to do more effective work in the future. So we're going to be putting little cards together, just like the, uh, the child sponsorship cards, and call it Kingdom Investments, and we'll be 
looking at giving people opportunities to be able to increase their specific missions giving, their offerings above and beyond the tithe that way. So I'm excited about that. And last night I said we had one and a half kids left to sponsor, and I think we maybe have a half a kid left to sponsor now. So we're almost completely done. That's like 40 kids at the children's home being sponsored. It's a fantastic, fantastic thing. You know, Jesus asks a lot of us. As we've gone through this series, you know, we see that, that we're supposed to forgive. You know, we're supposed to make a difference in this world, bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And we have to grow, which means we've got to look in the mirror and deal with our hearts. And, and that can be harsh. And Jesus expects a lot of us. It's expressed in Mark 8, 34 and 35 this way. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So deny yourself, look at the purposes of God, carry that burden, and follow him. Verse 35, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So he's saying, If we give our lives to him, we won't really lose, we'll actually gain. It's a big ask to give your life to Jesus. But let me tell you, Jesus went first. He gave his life for you, and now he asks us to give our lives to serve him. When we give our lives to serve him, we get to live the life we were truly meant to live. We get to be people of forgiveness, people of deep connection and bond to one another. We get to be people who give help others. We get to be people of the cross. Sometimes it's a struggle as we face the hardships, as we're thrown out as lambs among wolves. But Jesus is the lamb that shed his blood, that was falsely accused, tried, scourged, crucified. Every moment he could have called down legions of angels to save him, but he didn't because he saw you as worth it. This is the Jesus we honor. This is the Jesus we follow. Our closing scripture is going to be Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Let's read that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This life can be a battle. Serving Jesus can be a battle. Learning and growing and overcoming the darkness within ourselves that we can be people who bring light to this world is a battle. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, if we see what he's done for us, if we look at our lives as being bought and paid for by the Lord, that we have eternity in our future then we don't grow weary because we know we have a Lord that loves us. Thank you, Father, that you love us and that you've made a plan of redemption. I just pray a blessing over each one that's in this place right now. Lord, whatever storms, whatever battles we're facing, I pray, Lord, that your peace that passes all understanding would rest on our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give us a faith to move mountains, that you would... You would motivate us and give us strength. You'd help us to see the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And Lord, you would give us faith to be able to move those mountains that a difference could be made in this world. Lord, help us to be filled with joy, a deep foundational joy that the ups and downs of life do not shake. And Lord, help us to know how much you love us 
Lord, for those in here, those watching that need a revelation of how much you really care and what we mean to you, I pray right now you would just bring that revelation in, bring that power in, help us to see so that we can be filled up and have plenty of extra love to share with the people in this world who so desperately need it. Lord, bless us in that way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.